Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Beringer Ingelheim knows that every veterinary professional in practice has a wide variety of needs. That's why our Equine Veterinary Technical Solutions team, our VETS team, is here to provide education, product, and veterinary expertise, exceptional customer care, and regulatory stewardships. Our mission is to lead our veterinary community in technical knowledge and build a long-lasting relationship with our customers. To get in contact with one of our team members, please call us at 888-637-4251. Hi, I'm Mike Connell, and welcome to the AAP Practice Life Podcast sponsored by our friends at Beringer Engelheim. And today's subject is an interesting one. We're going to talk about safety. And as equine vets, we know how dangerous this profession could be. But we're going to talk about the physical safety, how we can be safer physically, but also emotionally or mentally as well, too. I think that always gets forgotten about. And when we look at some of the research that's going on and, and seeing the attrition that's going on in our profession and some of the recent studies, why people leave the equine profession, a lot of it is related to mental health as well, too. So we have two very special guests, one from Canada, one from the United States via the UK. So let's start south. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Louise Bat from High Country Veterinary Services. Hi, Louise. How are you? Hi, Mike. I'm good. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your practice. Where are you? What do you do? I am in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. I was a solo practitioner and we just increased and we have two and a half vets now and mainly ambulatory working towards more haul-in, but um, for the most part, we're probably about 85% ambulatory at the moment. Great. And then the next guest, uh, I will give context to it, but I'll let her introduce herself first is Dr. Tova Caldwell. Hey, Tova. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm great. And we have such familiarity. I'll let you explain why, Topa. Yeah, so I've been an associate at McKee Powell, working with Mike for the last 12 years. Mostly sport horse practice, mostly ambulatory. A little bit of everything, though. So, yeah, Mike and I know each other quite well. And the reason why I asked Tova here, just other than the blatant nepotism of it all, is that Tova also just recently completed a master's in leadership. And her research was mindfulness and equine practice, and she will be presenting at the AEP convention in November on it. And so I thought when we start talking about safety and and knowing uh, Tova's research, I thought there'd be some great applications and we're talking about safety. So let's jump in it. So Louise, I, I guess the basis of this discussion is we know it's a dangerous practice. And I know we have an associate in our own practice that just got nailed two weeks ago and had to be taken to the hospital in an ambulance. And we thought she just shattered her knee. And fortunately, it's just a horrible, horrible bruise. All of us, I'm sure everybody who's listening has been really hurt at some point or another, or has had that proverbial, like, is this it for my career? But you have the the BEVA study that was done a number of years ago. So maybe you can share some of the highlights of it. Yeah, certainly. I have the Beaver Sunday in front of me. It really, to me, highlighted how dangerous, I guess, our job is compared to other professions. And one of the main highlights towards the end of it is 
that really, along with the prison service and the police, is one of the highest risk of injuries as a profession as a whole. And then the kinds of injuries that we're likely to get over our lifetime of potentially a 30-year career is between seven and eight severe injuries of either a leg kick or a head injury, mainly. Yeah, I thought one of the things was interesting when I remember reading this, I remember when it came out a number of years ago, was that it's the pleasure horses that cause the most injuries. And yeah, boy, that resonated. Mm-hmm. Like a really yep. hard kick in the shin. Yep. Yeah. And the other sense. part of it that resonated with me, especially starting as solo practitioners, like so many people are without a technician, is that the large proportion that occurred when there was an owner handling versus yeah. either a trained groom or an assistant. Yeah. No, you read the survey and, you know, you sort of, you're not surprised by the the numbers, but at the same time, you're like, is it that bad? So, right. I was just thinking about it and I, and I was like, wow, it didn't even include the ones that were no longer in practice because it was based on practitioners yeah. or any studies on deaths occurring. So, it wasn't yeah. any of so I think we all, we all know somebody that has been hurt in ourselves and some people have had to leave the profession because of it. So on that cheery note, Right. <laughs> so one of the things I did when I knew we were going to do the subject, I put on the AEP uh, Facebook group, members Facebook group, what people thought of, what do they do to keep themselves safe? And so I thought, you know, I sort of grouped them together. I'm keeping this anonymous because on the AEP Facebook page, it's amongst members only. This is going to be, who knows who's going to be listening to this. So if you submitted it and this seems familiar, thank you. But you know how social media can get into the wrong hands, and I just don't want that to happen. So let's talk about general principles. So one of the comments was, professor at the university used to tell us, no horse is worth any skin off of your finger. You've got to know when to quit, when to say no. A lack of training is not your problem to fix. It's the owners. Boy, that sounds familiar. So let me ask you, Louise, and I'll ask you, Tova. So How many years into practice did you realize, I'm not getting killed for this person's spoiled brat? (laughs) Sometimes I don't always realize that. Honestly, it was (laughs) probably my first pregnancy. So that was about seven or eight years into practice. And actually, I I was more thinking like, oh, God, there's a lot more on the line than just my life, in inverted commas. Sounds a bit stupid when you say that. but (laughs) Yeah, but we like to be heroes. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I think that's in our DNA. How about yourself, Tova? For me, it was a very defining moment. And it was, I was blocking a hind limb on a a horse that I knew well that I had chosen to block because I thought she was a suitable candidate. I put her foot down and she kicked up at me, double barreled up at me and hit the wall beside my head. (laughs) And, and it was like, so close to me. Like I felt her foot skim my ear. And that was just a very eye opening moment of like, okay, I'm going to make different decisions going forward, you know, in how, just how you look at those situations, what's really necessary, getting the answer versus unanswer, you know, and just trying to be a little bit more thoughtful about how I go about things and what horses I choose to do things on. Right. There's another one here, another comment that somebody said, when confining a horse in any manner, I capitalize always determine an escape route for myself, my tech, my equipment, and most importantly, the horse. I was reading that. I thought about my defining moment. I remember I was scoping a horse 
you know, just like you're thinking, okay, this, I've got three more seconds. I've got, you know, five more seconds. It, it stays like at three seconds for a minute and you're scoping it and scoping it. And all of a sudden this horse just erupted and just reared up and then came down. And I felt his hooves go down the front of my body. And all of a sudden I just felt my left side become very moist. And I'm like, how the heck did this horse cut me? And like, am I bleeding out? Luckily, I had a can of Pepsi in my coat pocket and it just <laughs> ruptured it. <laughs> but it was like one of those situations where you're like, that was so stupid. That was entirely stupid. So I, I think people have talked about really is we don't want to get hurt. We don't want our people to get hurt, our handlers to get hurt. And having that escape route is just critical. So, yeah, yeah, I think so. And actually, um, just before I came in here, my, <laughs> my associate came in and was like, wow, I really thought that owner was going to get us all killed. <laughs> I was like, please don't say that. Yeah. And actually it was because of a mare that was particularly bullshy and they were trying to get into the stall with her of the lack of escape route in that. Yeah, for sure. There's nothing like being in that stall and you can't get out. It's terrifying. Yeah. I've gotten a little bit more progressed in practice and some of these things happen, I think. In terms of planning escape routes, I've become much more comfortable in having very frank discussions with people, <laughs> you know, owners that are in the wrong spot, owners that are not being respectful of the horse's energy or behavior or trying to be very hands-on. And, and you have to be, I think, careful because sometimes the horse generally is better with the owner holding it than saying mm-hmm. or stand or whatnot if they're a nervous horse. But I think learning to be more uh, direct without being rude, you know, and just being very thoughtful in how I, how I speak to people in those moments to imply that this is not safe and you need to move, you know? And I I think that's helped a lot in planning in just keeping the situation safe is making sure that everybody knows what they should be doing in a particular moment. Yeah. And and I agree with that. I think also just being able to uh, kind of stop and and say, right, let's just back off everyone. Let's calm the situation down and do risk assessments. A, when you get on the farm, just mentally in your head, like, okay, where am I? You know, how many moving parts are there here? And then also if a situation is escalating or an owner owner isn't reading the situation or what have you, it's just being able to stop and take that time to do that. That's an interesting concept because much like it's, you know, one of the hardest things about being a lameness vet or sport horse vet is when the owner is the cause of the lameness because of, of poor riding. And so, you know, nobody ever wants to say the lameness is caused by you. And so we diplomatically skirt around it. So what are some of the phrases that you'll use when you know that the owner or handler is escalating the situation? Because this is their baby. This is their pet. And they don't realize how they may be making it worse. What do you think, Tova? Oh, that's a good question. I think... Like, I don't have any trouble telling people, like, if I feel uncomfortable with a situation or I feel, you know, like if I feel there is a risk to a person or a horse, I don't have any trouble just telling people that, you know, in in a way. And a lot of my clients I know, and I don't know if this is relevant or not, but, you know, you build relationships with them. And what I find when I find it's really difficult to talk to people is when I'm doing body work, say chiropractic or acupuncture. And many times the, the owners are quite nervous. And so then the horse is nervous because the owner's, and so I'll often ask the owner if the technician or if somebody else can hold the horse and they will usually see very quickly that the horse will settle down. And, and I try to just find a way to be open about what's going on in those situations so that the people understand. So they don't think that I'm just being rude and saying like, Hey, can you go in the next room or go in the tack room? You know, I don't want them to ever feel like I'm 
isolating them. I want them to know why I'm doing that and 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 what my thought process is. And I find most times, if you sort of explain where you're coming from, what you're worried about, or what you're trying to achieve, I think they're usually pretty good at, at respecting that. And most of them will laugh. Some of them get a little bit offended, <laughs> but you know, I think at the end of the day, if it makes your life a little bit easier, the horse is better, you're getting more out of whatever you're doing, then you just have to have those conversations sometimes. For sure. Yeah. We've certainly sort of had situations where we've said, you know, I know you're a little worried about this procedure and your horse really trusts you. So he's kind of feeding off your energy. Would you mind if the technician is the bad guy here and holds him and you can go and either just pet him on the side or you know, in that situation, I might ask them to go a little bit further and be like, I don't want you to get injured by mistake. So if you could please let my technician take the fall. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, uh, Louise, you mentioned technicians earlier. And so some of the comments from people on the uh, AP Facebook group was just the value of technicians, of having a competent horse handler, somebody that can read the situation, positions themselves well. What if you don't have one? And when we all started in practice, we don't necessarily all had technicians. So, and many people still practice without technicians. So any words of advice or thoughts on that? I would sort of go back to the making sure that you read the situation when you're getting there before you dive into whatever diagnostics or whatever exam that you're doing. And just if you don't, especially if you don't know the owner or the handler and just kind of make sure that you just do a little bit of slight observation while you're getting your grip ready or whatever it is. And then being able to say, no, we can't do this, you know, in this situation, I think that that's skipping to the back that if there's uh, if there's something that is really not safe with an owner, then um, being able to say, you know, I think we ought to do this different way or potentially refer if you have to. And then I think just being able to have those honest and open conversations with your owners too, about directing them where you want them to be and why that is. Anything to add to that, Tova? Yeah, I think so much of the times too, like horse people or owners, they have actually very little understanding of what it is to hold a, a horse for a veterinary procedure versus say standing at the barn with your friends out grazing your horse right and and so I think there's a lack of understanding of what their job is when you ask them to to hold a horse so I try to take a few minutes and just explain like this could happen this might happen this is what I need you to do I need you to focus and I don't hesitate. And again, as I've gotten a bit more confident and probably a bit more assertive, like if I see somebody pull out their phone, yeah. that, I'm like, okay, can you please put your phone away? I really need you to pay attention to this horse right now. And I will tell them like, I need to focus on your horse to get this job done. I need you to focus on keeping me safe. So I just find, I try to make sure that they know what I expect of them in those situations, because I think most of them just have no, you see it when you hire a new assistant, that's a, a horse person, right? They're great with horses, but they don't have that sort of like critical thinking eye of what could go wrong and how do I keep people safe, you know, because right. they will all tell you, oh, my horse will never kick you. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, well, just in case um, <laughs> exactly. I remember before I was a vet I was a farrier and I was finishing off the hooves and the horse was nibbling on my back as they tend to do and I'm sort of trying to brush it off and I remember telling the owner can you please keep your horse's head up there and they said oh he loves doing it he'll never bite you and as soon as they said that chomp on my back and it was one of those lessons like we have rose-colored glasses about everything that belongs to us. We never really want to see what could go wrong. 
Yeah. One comment that came in from the uh, Facebook group, and I think it's probably more prevalent in the UK than it is in North America, is this one vet said that they carry a riding helmet in their truck and they're not afraid to use it, especially for squirrely hind end horses, flexions, injections, what have you. And if the clients laugh, I say, I paid a lot of money for these brains. Why wouldn't I protect them? And I thought, you know, they're without a technician. And I have brought this up to vets and there's such a stigma about wearing a helmet. I don't know where it's from, but I think it's a dangerous stigma almost. Like there's a reason yeah. why we have helmets and athletes or people in contact sports have equipment. So <laughs> I don't mind commenting on that because I think that's how some of this conversation came up was because we actually just started because of that, like, oh gosh, that could have been a really bad thing. Requiring our techs to wear helmets when they lunge, particularly in um, those squirrely horses, the young horses. I kind of did a little bit of digging of who did require things or, or what have you. And I'd gone back to the UK to do a bit of seeing practice a few years ago. And and that was a thing. They just, the techs were all wearing helmets. I don't know if it was just that practice or or more common. Um, I think it's 2019. So after this paper came out, a more common practice. I do think the stigma was something that I maybe hadn't come across as much until I got here, especially in riding. Like my husband will never wear, or he's a crusty old cowboy and he will never wear a helmet riding. <laughs> I think within the equine community, there's not as much wearing helmets as maybe there is in other parts of the world either. Yeah. What do you think, Tova? Because I mean, it's nothing that we do in our practice or we have seen in, in our neck of the woods. I don't know if you've encountered it at all anywhere. I have actually taken a helmet in some calls and I, I'm, I have used my own helmet for that reason before, particularly after the whole almost got kicked in the head thing. Yeah. And I have no trouble myself putting a helmet on. It's interesting about the technicians lunging because I can think of a few instances where, you know, they go to send them out and they turn around and kick their heels up. And there's mm-hmm. been a couple of times where I have thought, oh my gosh, they just got kicked in the head. Like it didn't actually dawn on me to think maybe we should go that one step further and actually have them wear helmets. I think that's a fantastic idea. And honestly, both my, I've only got two technicians, so I'm tiny practice, but um, uh, both of them were like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, they've probably seen it and their feet in their face to go. Right. Yeah. Totally. They're like, yeah, I get it. Because I mean, it was one of those instances that I was like, oh my God, I nearly had her killed. So the stigma, I think, is something that we, I guess it's our problem to try and get over that. And um, we as practice owners or leaders need to lead by example too. For sure. Which is difficult to do, but I think it needs to be done. You know, if they say they see me putting a helmet on to do a hind limb block or a hind limb suspensory block or whatever, then hopefully my associates will be more likely to do it too. <laughs> well, we'll for sure get to the culture of safety in a little bit. Let's move on to restraint. And I know, you know, in our own practice, you know, we use twitches quite a bit, sometimes a neck twitch, but we're always telling when you feel that you need chemical restraint, like just do it and, you know, make sure you load up on the torbogesic to keep those back feet on the ground. So what are your approaches to that? We'll start with you, Louise. I subscribe to that point of view. And I certainly don't hesitate to use sedation if I need to. And, and even in lameness exams, you know, there's been plenty of data to show that we can give a little bit of sedation and still see that lameness. So if I've got one of those horses that I just think, you know what, you just need a little bit so I can actually get you to not kick my technician when you're being trotted up or to be able to block you just that little bit safer, then I will go ahead and do it. And I would say we don't have 
that much pushback on it that I know about. I think it's getting more mainstream. What do you think, Tova? Yeah, absolutely. I um, Most hind-end blocking that I do now, I will use a little sedation like xylazine torb, just a small amount, but just enough to get it done. I kind of approach these, I have two different lines of thoughts on these particular types of cases. And I think I will not hesitate to reach for a twitch or, you know, a shoulder twitch or a leg up or sedation or any of those things. But sometimes I think too, that less is more with some of those really reactive and really strong horses. And so sometimes I think just putting a little bit of effort into making them a willing participant can go a long way Mm -hmm. in terms of like, I know a number of horses that if I try to put the twitch on their nose, they're way worse. And you get similar to what you were saying about oh, I just need two more seconds. I need two more seconds. And then they explode, you know, and I have a few horses in my practice that I can't put a twitch on for that reason. But if you don't twitch them, (laughs) then they're better. You know, Mm -hmm. I try to feel out the situation a little bit and, and I won't put myself at risk to try something, you know what I mean? But I think sometimes, yeah, it it suss out the situation a little bit, you know, to figure out what actually works best for that horse in that moment. So there really is that sense of horsemanship or that we need to really, you know, read the room, read the horse, read the situation and not, there's not one fix for every situation. Yeah. So it's interesting. We were just talking about blocks and, you know, there's some comments about checking blocks, check from the opposite side. That way, if they're not blocked, they don't kick you in the face. The second comment, coffin joint injections, always do an axial block so they don't strike out. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> Glad I didn't break my nose on that one. Any other suggestions for blocking? Because this is where, because we're down low then and we're, we can't get out of the way and horses get fussy when you're playing around or they think you're a fly or what have you. So any words of advice on blocking? How about you, Louise? I don't know if it pertains to safety, or, but I do use a lot of butterflies for blocking. So I don't have that like extra stab by mistake, hmm. just for PDs and that kind of thing. And then uh, I think depending, like if you need them standing or what have you, then I'll have a technician picking up another foot on the other side and that kind of stuff. How about yourself, Tova? Yeah, for the suggestion about coffin joints, I started doing that a couple of years ago as well, blocking a lot of them before I inject them. And it has saved a lot of explosive moments of (laughs) horses not wanting their coffin joints injected. I think just, you know, even just practically a really simple tip that I picked up somewhere along the line is putting fly boots on them in the summertime when you're working on one leg. You can't always have a boot on the leg that you're working on, but we carry them in the truck now so that, you know, if you're scrubbing or doing anything like that, having some fly boots on the the other legs that you are not working on can go such a long way in just keeping them still, you know, and just having them not move around as much. And, And simple things like for scrubbing, not having a lot of water on your sponges so that they're not dripping down the leg and then they're not, you know, jumping all over the place. and just simple things like that, that have just helped, I think, keep general situations safer, you know, because the horse is happier. We were actually doing um, some uh, infraorbital blocks as well. And I think that was one that, you know, can be very uh, explosive <laughs> and really getting, making sure you're doing that when they're at their deepest sedation. <laughs> right. And that your technician is aware of quite how explosive they can be. I think making, making everyone aware of <laughs> what can happen too. You know, when you're talking about sedation, I think the biggest failure when we use chemical restraint is we don't wait long enough for it really to kick in. Mm-hmm. We're just rushing. Yeah. You know, like, 
you know, that Very extra guilty. couple my minutes. actually oh. has a stop clock and she won't let me come near them for dentals. And <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's a good idea. It's <laughs> like, Louise, it's only been three minutes. Hands <laughs> <laughs> off. So this was an interesting question, and this was actually submitted by the AAP, and they're asking relating to personal safety when responding to a call at night or visiting an unknown property for the first time, what steps do folks take to, quote unquote, vet the location client or ensure that someone knows where you are? Is there technology that helps with tracking your location? And I've heard stories from interns that have gone to some sketchy, sketchy places in the middle of nowhere. And they're saying, yeah, nobody would know I was here until the next day when they checked the app, you know, the night service and saw the, the calls that came in. So how do both of you approach that? How about you, Tova? So this is something that I've thought about a lot because I actually, like I live alone, right? And so many times at night, I am out and about and nobody would know where I am, you know, and, and the way that our practice is set up now, you know, we have a really great client base and we know most of the clients and we don't, we don't usually go out, but I can think of earlier in my career in the the smaller practice that I used to work in where it, you know, I would often end up there to these really random barns in the middle of the night and feel very unsafe. As a young vet, I didn't know what to do about that. I didn't, know how to say no. I didn't know how to say like, I'm not actually going to do that. You know what I mean? Because you think you just need to, you need to do it. They've called and asked, so you're going to go. So this is actually something I've thought about a lot. And I can't say that I have a lot of great words of wisdom to add to it. I'm kind of curious to hear what you guys have to say about that. Honestly, I've thought about the um, the location and for our work phones, it's just the iPhones and you switch on the um, location tracking. The only caveat to that is that they have to actually be in some form of cell phone service yeah. to work, which a lot of our area is mountainous as many rural locations are. And so the caveat to that is the technology has to be in service for that to work. In terms of, and, and I did ex- exactly the same thing when I was younger, it's like get to a situation, think, Oh gosh, I didn't tell anyone. <laughs> um, so I think things like either just simply texting your boss as well and saying, I'm going to this call, this is the address I'll be at, you know, whatever time it is. Is that going to keep you safe necessarily? No, but at least someone knows where you are. And I think being more assertive and then as a, a boss, making sure that your associates know that if they are really uncomfortable with a situation, they feel like the client's drunk when they're calling that kind of stuff that they can say no and you'll have their back. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. When I was reading that, I was thinking a little bit about what Uber does when you go into an Uber, you can sit there and track where you are. So if you're by yourself and something, you got a really dodgy, more than dodgy, just a terrible Uber driver, at least somebody knows you're there and they're actually tracking along with you. So I think I like the idea of telling your boss or a colleague, uh, like, I'm going to this call, I'll check in in half an hour or five minutes after I've been there and nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You know, because we are put in a very vulnerable position just by where we are geographically in some of the locations we're at. Louise, at the very beginning, you, you commented on something and I, and I think there's something we should get out about the culture of the practice and having a culture about safety and the physical safety. Can you expand on that? Yeah. It's something I guess, as I've been expanding to small proportions, but still for me that I've been thinking about a lot is just making sure that your employees feel or your 
the culture of your practice is inclusive to where everyone can sort of have their say and don't feel like either they can't have their say or they're not going to listen, get listened to if they're not comfortable with the situation. And then not just making sure that you allow that, but then having like either we have team meetings every week and, and we bring up and it's like, has anyone got any questions? We use the uh, Brene Brown, let's have a rumble kind of thing. Has anyone got anything they want to get on the table? And we actually did this a couple of weeks ago prior to the safety thing. And all the technicians and the older associate were really good at just putting in some advice. And then everyone just had a great conversation about it. And I think it's just keeping the conversation open and having a culture where the conversation can be had. Um, and someone can be like, hey, this is a stupid question, but what exactly is the kick zone? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and things like that. And no one's going to feel like they're stupid or they don't know what they're doing, you know, and they can have that or say, you know what, I would really rather it if we did this or can I have some gloves for lunging or whatever it is. Yeah, those are great points. And I think to that is really making sure that when we bring on new, you know, let's say vet assistants or RVTs, LVTs is doing training with them. It may seem redundant or we may assume they know what they're doing because they're from the horse world, but not everybody does. And at least if you can say, this is how we do it. This is where we like you to be positioned. And this is how we do things. I think it gives the veterinarians and everybody else a sense of security. And, you know, so taking that extra few minutes. Tova, let's talk about your research because I think, you know, we talk about safety. We're talking about the kicks and bites and the devastating physical accidents that can happen. But I think something that's far more insidious and builds up over time is mental safety. And so maybe just give us a brief overview of your research and a bit of a teaser of your presentation this November in San Antonio. Sure. Uh, So my research looked at, it was a broad question. My research question basically was, how are equine veterinarians using mindfulness to support their work life? What does that look like? So obviously, I, the population of veterinarians that I spoke to were all equine veterinarians who practice mindfulness to some extent. I did interview about uh, 15 of them, and it was basically the results were just, you know, from scouring over hours of interview data. The main link that I can pull from my research and mindfulness being the tool to develop this that fits into both physical safety and to mental safety is self-awareness, developing the skill of self-awareness and figuring out who you are. Mindfulness is a phenomenal tool to help you build self-awareness as a skill. Can you define mindfulness? Because I know it means a lot of things to different people. Sure. So mindfulness in like the most basic sense of the term is basically just paying attention on purpose to the present moment, what's happening in the present moment and doing that without judgment. So you're not assigning any feelings to it. You're just paying attention to what's going on. And that's a, that's a skill because most of us are constantly worried about a, what we just did or what we have to do, you know, we're thinking in the past or we're, we're worrying about the future. And so being in the actual moment is actually a difficult thing to learn, but it's really helpful in terms of developing some of these professional skills like self-awareness, right? From self-awareness, and the reason why I bring that up is sort of the main point to both physical and to mental safety is because when you really start to learn who you are and why you do the things that you do, you start to develop a sense of professional awareness who you are, you know, as a vet. And so with that sense of professional development comes 
you start to ask yourself questions, you know? So when you, when you've put yourself in a dangerous situation, you're like, oh, I'm going to block that horse. I need to block that horse. I probably shouldn't do it, but I need to do it. Cause if I don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. And owner wants me to know, like, I need to, I need to know. Right. When you develop a little bit more sense of self, you can sit back and go, but wait, why, why do I need to do that? What's motivating me to do that right now? Right. Is it my ego? Am I worried that the client's going to think worse of me? Am I worried that my colleagues aren't going to think that I'm a good vet? Am I not going to be able to find the magical answer that's going to solve the problem, right? And so I think having the ability to step back a little bit and ask yourself why you're doing the things you're doing and what's motivating you in those moments gives you a chance to think a little bit differently about them. So it gives you a chance to gain a bit of a bigger perspective. It gives you a chance to maybe think of a different solution. Okay, so if I don't block this horse, what else could I do, (laughs) you know? And then it also gives you the ability to be okay with whatever decision you've made at the end of the day, right? So if the next day that client says, well, I had so-and-so out and they blocked the horse, you can go, well, that's great. I'm glad it worked for them but it wasn't the right decision for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and therefore there's no sleep lost. There's no harm done. Everybody's happy with the outcome. Right. And so I think that ties into both aspects of safety really. Yeah. Now going more down the, the road of like a mental safety or like protecting yourself again, coming back to self-awareness, how many of us go home and replay what we did during the day? not always in the most positive light, right? We're worried, again, we're worried about what so-and-so thought of us. Did I do that injection perfectly? Did I? And we get into these patterns of rumination, especially as young vets, when we're seeking, you know, we want to prove ourselves to the world, right? And so we get into these patterns of, of thinking and ruminating, and we know that rumination is just, it's really highly linked with levels of depression and anxiety. It really affects our how we look at the world in terms of our levels of negative and positive effect. And it just causes a lot of anxiety at the end of the day, which is just so taxing to us, right? And so with mindfulness, you start to become aware of when you're ruminating, and then you can start to challenge yourself. What am I thinking? Is this true? <laughs> can I do anything differently about it, right? But unless you're in the moment to know what you're doing, if you don't have that awareness of what you're doing, you can't break those patterns all the time, right? And those are just so taxing to so many of us as A-type people who so badly want to be the best, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like that's a lot of us, that's who we are, right? And it takes a long time to learn to be okay with who you are and not necessarily be the best. Excellent. I know we could probably talk as you and I have talked about this on other podcasts forever because it's such an important subject. So I know you've got a feature spot at the convention. So I just encourage anybody, any age, any length of time in the profession to check out the topic because it's really, really important. So I like to thank both of you for participating. I know it's a busy time of year. We're tired. And I know that's probably the biggest reason that we get into accidents and do stupid things because we're tired. We're up on call and what have you. So Thank you both very much for participating and for your insights. Thank you for having me. Thank you. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org. 
Beringer Ingelheim knows that every veterinary professional in practice has a wide variety of needs. That's why our equine veterinary technical solutions team, our VETS team, is here to provide education, product, and veterinary expertise, exceptional customer care, and regulatory stewardships. Our mission is to lead our veterinary community in technical knowledge and build a long-lasting relationship with our customers. To get in contact with one of our team members, please call us at 888-637-4251.